I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Hey, this is Drew Marr, your new associate producer. Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that No End in Sight has a brand new newsletter. It's full of updates about Twitter conversations happening in our hashtag NEISVOID, book and article recommendations about chronic illness and disability, and links to new podcast episodes and miscellaneous other media. If you are comfortably able to support our work, there are paid options available, but all core content will be free. You can take a look at previous newsletters and subscribe over at noendinsight.substack.com. Today, you'll be hearing my health story for the first time. Brianne interviewed me, and we got into hypermobility, fibromyalgia, mental health stuff, including borderline personality disorder and alcoholism, and quite a few other things. A few content notes for our conversation. We talk about eating disorders and restrictive dieting at around minute 7, minute 20, and then again at an hour and 45 minutes in. There's a mention of weight gain and fatmesia at around an hour and 12 minutes in. We talk about queermesia at around minute 10, and there's a mention of queer conversion therapy at minute 28. There's talk of suicide and ideation at around the 25 and 50 minute marks. We talk quite a bit about alcohol and cannabis between the 20 and 40 minute marks, and there's a mention of cocaine at around the 35 minute mark. And finally, there's a mention of injections at around 40 minutes in. Before we start, here's our disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So, I'd like to get started by asking you about your health as a kid. So, my health as a kid, I thought of myself and my family definitely thought of me as a healthy kid. Mm -hmm. Looking back, I can see that that was not really the case. Mm -hmm. So basically, the earliest thing that I can think of, which is actually something that I thought of like last night that just clicked for me, is that I remember being like in elementary school and I was talking to my best friend's mom The three of us were in the car and I mentioned that like my neck or that my back hurt and she was like, oh, did you sleep funny last night? And I was like, I guess I did. I didn't really think that I had, but that just seemed like the correct answer. (laughs) Yeah. Like this adult probably knows what causes pain and they're asking me about the pain cause. So that must be it. Exactly. So yeah, I've always had chronic pain, like as long as I can remember. And before realizing that that had happened last night, (laughs) what I had thought of as like the origin point was, so I was born in Venezuela and I grew up in Miami. Okay. So when I was 12, my mother and I had gone back to Venezuela to like visit family or something. And at some point we were at 
a mall and I sort of noticed that my left trapezius, which is kind of the muscle between your shoulder and your neck, was hurting. So I put my hand there and I felt a lump, like a huge lump, like it was the size of a grape. Okay. That you would like feel with your fingers. Yeah. I'm like touching my traps, but I actually incidentally... I have very tight traps also. I'm sure it's a complete coincidence, but yeah. it means when I'm sitting up, I'm like constantly needing them. So people oh, can't totally. see this, but I happen to be aggressively need- needing my traps while you're talking about yours. Go yes, on. Yes, I, I do great- this all the time. Yeah. So I feel this lump. It's the size of a grape and I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's that? Yeah. What's yeah. that in my 12 year old body? So I turn to my mom and I'm like, hey, I have a lump. <laughs> and and like, not my so mom. Weird that I thought to look for them also. Yeah. Like... And my mom had cancer when I was like one. She had melanoma. So she was like, uh, okay. Yeah. So she feels the lump and she's like, oh, you just have a muscle knot. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Okay. Are they supposed to be like that? Like, Are they supposed to be that big? Yeah. And she's like, I mean, yeah, it's kind of a crazy muscle knot, but <laughs> it's kind of a very large muscle knot. But like, yeah, that's a muscle knot. And it's yeah. probably from sleeping on my mother's very hard mattress. Like, it'll go away. And I'm like, okay. You know, because I'm 12. <laughs> yeah. And, like, why wouldn't that be the case? Yeah. Why wouldn't that be how that works out? Like, it's incidental. It'll go away. We don't know where it came from. We'll forget about yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly. So, it never went away. <laughs> As it turns out. So I mean, you... the muscle knot itself, like, does wax and wane. Like, right now, I don't have it. But mm-hmm. my left trapezius does hurt right now. And it has since I can remember. Yeah, like it's definitely been not behaving like a happy muscle, even if maybe yeah. it's not always as angry. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So like muscle tightness, which, okay, without getting into anything that either of us might know in the present, it's really interesting to me to look back at all this mechanical stuff that like clearly nobody was ever paying attention to or telling anybody to pay attention to. It wasn't yeah. like, I don't think... And I guess maybe this is changing. Like, even younger people who are starting to get diagnosed now might get some information. But, like, so many people are just in a lot of pain. And everyone's like, oh, a little bit of pain is normal. And you're like, okay, I guess, is this what a little bit of pain is? (laughs) Okay. Cool, cool, Yeah, exactly. The sore muscles to start, basically. So now to, like, backtrack a little bit. Mental health is a huge part of my health story. Mm -hmm. I when I was in the third grade, started restricting my eating. Okay. Um, And I mean, it had to do with a lot of things in the way that eating disorders always do. Mm -hmm. But I think a really big part of that was that I started doing ballet when I was like five. Okay. And I also am, you know, a Latin American person (laughs) growing up with all these white people. Mm-hmm. And my body does not look mm-hmm. the way that other people's bodies look. I also remember this last night out of nowhere. My grandmother, when I was like 
still in elementary school, commented in like a very benign way, I guess, about my ass being really perky. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's this like- is just a thing that I am now normalizing about- Whatever. How we talk or think about bodies. Yeah. yeah. So my body, I've never been fat. And I think that that's like an important thing to acknowledge because like I do have the privilege of a thin person in certain ways. Like I, I don't really struggle to find clothes that are my size, mm-hmm. right? But my body was just never quite shaped the way that people wanted it to be shaped yeah like ambiguous is probably the wrong word but like cumulative culture environmental pressure that can come from kind of whatever i mean you just listed them but like the factors of they kind of can play together exactly and at some point in elementary school i think this was in the third grade so i'm also trans but the the girls in my class of whom i was a part at that time decided that they needed to teach me how to eat like more nutritiously which was weird there's a lot to unpack there yeah so that's happening it's the third grade that's like a ridiculously young age to be developing an eating disorder so i start skipping meals in the fifth grade i start binging and purging also in the fifth grade i start to feel depressed so then Yeah, after that, middle school was a really difficult time for me, as it is for many people. It's like a terrible idea to put all of these very pubescent people into one isolated space with nobody younger or older. Yeah, but not to minimize how much harm is done, because as it turns out, that can cause a lot of harm. Yeah. Yeah. So middle school was awful. I, my depression got worse. My eating disorder got worse, definitely. And like right at the beginning of the seventh grade, I realized that I was queer. I was like, oh, I'm I'm bisexual. I come out like pretty immediately because I'm just like, yeah, whatever. This is just a thing. I have just learned a word with which to describe myself. So I tell my friends and they're kind of like weird about it. They like don't really want to talk to me anymore. <laughs> and so then it's just me mm-hmm. and I'm alone and no one's really talking to me. The following year, I told my mom that I was bisexual, and then she didn't talk to me for like a month, and it was just me and her living by ourselves. So that was really hard. I think probably, yeah. I think probably that was the year that I first asked my mom if I could go to therapy, Mm -hmm. and she said no, (laughs) because she had been to therapy a few times like in the 80s and the 90s some of that was in venezuela some of that was in washington dc she spent the 90s in dc and her experience with therapy was that it either wasn't helpful or it was actively harmful which is a truth about many therapists yeah that's um, I have like the the worst kind of filter on this where I'm like, oh, it's one of the impossible things where therapy can be so bad if you have a bad therapist. I'm not yeah. agreeing with the parenting strategy. I just like the world is hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I really feel for her like it's awful to have a bad therapist, which I later experienced. Yeah. 
And also around the same time, my school kind of did scoliosis screenings, Mm. which is pretty common. And they were like, hey, we think you have scoliosis. And I was like, okay, (laughs) cool. (laughs) All right. And then also in the seventh grade, I started cheerleading. So I had to get a physical. And my doctor was like, you have scoliosis. Okay. So you definitely have scoliosis. I have a question, though. Since you have now mentioned both cheerleading and ballet to just, you know, I wouldn't have known to ask this a couple years ago, but two sports that typically attract, not even attract, scout for people who are very flexible. Did you show up flexible? Is that how you ended up in, or part of how you ended up in those sports? That is something that I discovered in ballet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And also I did yoga as a kid, like Mm -hmm. as a very small child. I started yoga when I was three. Mm -hmm. So flexible stuff going on. Yeah. So when I was three, I started yoga. When I was five, I started ballet. And then I did both of those until like late elementary school. So Mm -hmm. until I was like 10, Mm -hmm. 11, 12. I don't know exactly when elementary school ends, but yeah, um, around then. Yeah, ten, eleven, yeah. not twelve. By twelve, I wasn't doing that anymore. Okay, but then you so then got to cheerleading. So yeah, a different... so then seventh grade, I start cheerleading. I'm very bendy. I'm the only person who is a cheerleader who can do a split. Like day one, mm-hmm. I can do splits, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Wow." <laughs> Yes, good. And I'm like, okay. This is a good sign and not a bad sign. Also, in elementary school, they made us do like the presidential physical fitness test. Mm. And I was so awful at all of them. Like just, I am not an athletic person. But the sit and reach, which is for listeners, it's like you put your feet up on this box thing and then you push a metal slidey boy and it measures like how many inches past your feet you can push your hands basically yeah. so like a um, ham i'm not just hamstring but hamstring slash whatever else like unfolds your spine flexibility yeah. kind of thing yeah i was just getting these ridiculously high scores <laughs> <laughs> weirdly yeah and I always kind of felt pretty good about that. I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is my one test that I do good on. Because mm-hmm. I also, like, I was labeled as academically gifted very early. So anything that was labeled a test was very sort of high stakes for me <laughs> emotionally. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, I start cheerleading and I do my physical. The doctor tells me that I have scoliosis. She also tells my mom Mm -hmm. (laughs) because she's there. And she's like, you need to take your kid to a back doctor to just like figure out the scoliosis, figure out if anything needs to be done. get an x-ray, you know, all of the scoliosis things. Check it out. Yeah. And in the appointment, my mom is like, okay. And I'm like, okay. And my doctor also tells me that I have a slightly out of range BMI. That I'm like, I have a slightly higher BMI than would be expected. Right. And she tells my mom, like, you know, you might want to go to an endocrinologist, but it's not really a big deal. 
Okay. And my mom's like, okay. So we got referred to like the back doctor and the endocrinologist. And my mom makes the endocrinologist appointment right away. And, you know, I start going to that. And then like a few months later, I kind of realized that we haven't gone to the back doctor. And so I asked my mom about it and she's like, oh, I don't think you need that. I'm like, all right. Okay. 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 Noted. And later she told me that it was because she was scared. You know, my pediatrician had mentioned that one of the possibilities was that I would need to wear a back brace. Mm -hmm. And my mom knew that I wasn't doing well socially in school. And she was like, people are going to be ableist to my kid. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yep. But also, oof. Yeah, it's. Right in there with like, yeah, the I completely understand the emotional yeah. like instinct there. Yeah. It's and I and I must and I like think about this so much about how parents have to constantly make judgment calls about this stuff. And like I'm sure sometimes they're right of like that thing turned out not to be a big deal. And like yeah. I don't know, I don't I have my own junk. I do not mean to be like defending poor parent choices about kids healthcare but like now no like being able to see what I can see now in terms of how medium effective the healthcare system is I like have a lot more compassion for how difficult it must be to make decisions for a child that's yeah. all I had to say about it. I I definitely have gone through like many different stages of mm-hmm. how I view my mom mm-hmm. as everyone does mm-hmm. I think but at this point I'm in a place where I'm like yeah like she made a series of ultimately not great, but very understandable parenting decisions. Yeah. And I can't say that in her place, I wouldn't have done the same thing. Like, I don't know. Yeah. If I had had her upbringing, like maybe I would have. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's so hard. One thing that I found really difficult about the in retrospect stuff is it's like, given what was known by the medical community at the time and what common practices were at the time and what inputs I know that this person had, it's like, it's not about excusing people, but it's about just really looking back and being like, oh yeah, this is a quagmire. Like I can, like you just said, I cannot in good faith say like, I would have navigated this better, whatever that might mean, but it's hard. Yeah. So I started seeing the endocrinologist who puts me on like a diet plan. She's like, oh, we need to change how you're eating carbs. And I already have an eating disorder Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I haven't told anyone about. Yeah. And that no one has noticed because I'm very good at lying. (laughs) And so I don't change anything about the way that I'm eating and I don't lose any weight. And I just lie to the endocrinologist and I tell her, that I've made the changes that she wanted me to make. And she's like, okay, weird that nothing is happening then. Yeah. So she keeps like telling me that I need to eat fewer and fewer carbs. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Yeah. And. Were they, as an aside, if it's an an endo who's managing that and you were referred because of, BMI, were they looking at PCOS or like were they looking at insulin resistance? 
so yeah so that's important they tested me for they tested like my hormone levels Mm -hmm. to check for pcos they tested my thyroid Mm -hmm. and they also had me get like a hand x-ray so that they could do a bone age Mm. to see if i was done growing gotcha which i was also important (laughs) (laughs) yeah my bone age i was like 12 at that point i had gotten my period like the previous year and my bone age was like 16 they were like yeah you are done growing (laughs) like there's no more growing yeah that's going to happen and the reason why that's important is because when i was in elementary school i was introduced to the term growing pains yes I would go to the nurse and I would tell her my, you know, my calves hurt or whatever. And she would say, oh, you're having growing pains. And then I went home and my mom was like, oh, how was school today? And I was like, well, my legs hurt. But I went to the nurse and she told me it was growing pains. She was like, okay. Fair enough. I really, not that I don't know who would have the resources to do this, but Mm -hmm. I really want to know if growing pains are real at this point. Like, Me too. (laughs) Are they real? Or is this just literally everybody who has them is probably hypermobile, since that seems to be... Sorry, anybody who might be somehow listening to this episode without (laughs) knowing anything about hypermobility from every other episode. Like, that is such a anecdotally strong correlation that I talked about on this one when I was like, but I had growing pains and was not hypermobile. Yeah. False. So, so where are we? Yeah. So your nurse told you you had growing pains. Yes. And then my endocrinologist told me that I was done growing in the seventh grade. So by this point, like I've already, I've been to Venezuela. I've had the, the shoulder pain. Mm -hmm. So then we already went through the eighth grade where I came out to my mom. And then I also asked her if we could go to therapy. She said no. So then very early in the ninth grade, I'm like super suicidal. And I started drinking. (laughs) Because like literally one night I am like very suicidal. Like I'm ready pretty much. I realized, like, oh, like, a YouTube person that I follow, like, posted a video tonight. I'm going to watch it. It's, like, four minutes. I watch it, and it makes me feel, like, kind of a little bit better. And I'm like, ah, okay. So I don't have to kill myself. But I still feel very bad. And, like, what is a thing that culturally people do when they feel very bad? I guess they drink. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I started drinking. I... Like, at first, I'm, like, stealing my mom's alcohol. Then later, I'm, like, drinking Listerine because I'm drinking so much that, like, my mom will notice mm-hmm. if her alcohol is going missing. But, you know, like, no one's really ex- no one's really thinking about how much mouthwash you're going through. Yeah, it would take a long time to notice because the first... Yeah. Yeah. The first couple times feel like a fluke or a bad memory or whatever. Yeah. Not that the details of that matter, but... Yeah. But yeah, so that happens. And I'm sort of drinking to, like, self-medicate my mental illness. But it also, like, alleviates my pain. So that's a thing. A couple years later, I start smoking weed. And then I realize that that's, like, amazing for my pain. So I'm smoking weed all the time. 
I'm just like constantly high. I'm high at school. I'm high talking to my mom. I'm high at like theater rehearsals, orchestra rehearsals. I did like a thousand school activities when I was a kid. I have no idea how. (laughs) So my school had an orchestra that rehearsed before school. So school started at eight. We had rehearsal at 730. Okay. So I would be up at 630 to get to orchestra rehearsal, or I would actually be up at like six so that I could start drinking. Gotcha. Yep. And so I would get to school at 730. And then sometimes if I was in a play that was like starting the next week, I would be there until eight, nine p.m like over 12 hour days. Yeah, that like hurts my body to think about now, but I yeah. was that busy at one time in my life. That's a yeah. long day, yeah. In the ninth grade, I was still cheerleading and you know, sometimes football games wouldn't get out until 10 p.m. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so old and or sick, but like 10 p.m. Yeah. God. yeah, it's, I can't believe what we expect from teens. Oh. Because no, that's so early. That was normal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'm drinking, I'm high all the time. And the way that I can tell that I'm coming down is that my back will start to hurt. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I'll be in class or whatever. My back starts hurting. I'm like, oh, I get up, I go to the bathroom and I'm like vaping weed in the bathroom of my high school. And... You know, eventually, like, my mom catches on. Yeah, no, she's notices like, hmm, something's going. Something's, something's up. And her response is that I can't do any more of my after-school activities. That's a classic. That's a classic. Yeah. So that didn't work. Okay, Because yeah. that doesn't work. Does not really address the problem, no. Yeah, um... I start sneaking out. This is my senior year. I start sneaking out. I'm telling her that I'm going to the gym when I'm not. Things like that. And eventually she catches me when I've snuck out. And I'm like, okay, you're mad at me already. (laughs) So this is the time. This is also how I came out to her in the eighth grade. You're mad at me already, so this is the time. Hi. Surprise, I'm trans. And my mom is like, oh, oh. This, this conversation went a different direction than I expected. <laughs> yeah. And then she's like, okay, that's a lot for me to handle. I think you should go to therapy. And I'm like, oh, that's not what I was expecting, but okay, yeah, good. Everybody had a surprise here today. Really? Wow. No one thought that that conversation was going to go the way that it did, but it sure did go that way. Yeah. Um, so I'm a senior in high school. I'm finally seeing a therapist. And she sucks, but I don't know that. Yeah. Right, just... Yeah. <laughs> She's like seeing my mom and me separately about me. Yep. So... Like, in my first appointment, she was like, so there's two ways that we can do this. The first way is we can do family therapy. 
And the second way is that I can see you and your mom separately. I was like, I don't want to have therapy where my mom is there. Yeah, like that's not the primary thing that's, that needs to be untangled right now. Maybe Yeah, that's not going to help. Sometime, but it's yeah. not it's not in here right now. So I'm like, let's let's just have you see my mom separately and it'll be fine. And she's like, okay. A few weeks into that, my mother and I realized that the therapist is actively trying to turn us against each other. <laughs> and we're like, ah, okay, so we're not going to see Raquel anymore. <laughs> yeah. Also, there were these weird sessions where she would tell me about, like, queer people who she was seeing or who she had seen who wanted her to turn them straight and she was like I don't do that and I was like okay I don't want that yeah like that should be the norm I would say that's not something that you should I understand contextually in the United States that there are many places where it's probably comforting to hear maybe yeah but like it's not necessary to lead with yeah yeah and then at some point like i told her about being suicidal and she was like oh you shouldn't kill yourself because that would make me very upset and i was like i've seen you three times in my entire life i don't really care how you would feel if i were to kill myself (laughs) and like there's something so gross in there that like one of the things about perhaps like growing up not being really good at maintaining boundaries perhaps because your body's boundaries were constantly violated because nobody knew how to honor them because nobody could see what was going on just hypothetically is something that might happen with a lot of people in conjunction with other things like one of the things about needing to like figure out how to be a person and maintain boundaries is not like taking on other people's bullshit emotional load. Like the idea that a stranger that you pay to help you with your mental health, like the idea that feeling bad that you might let them down is like a good way to be motivated is like by itself. Just, I know that people say that all the time, but like, especially a therapist that you barely have an investment in it would be different if you had like a long-standing relationship where you had a context where you authentically cared about their feelings yeah yeah it was it was a journey yeah um so then my mom reaches out to the therapist who she liked the most when she was doing therapy in the 90s in washington dc And she's like, hey, do you know any therapists in Miami? And she says, no, I live in Washington, D.C. Sure, sure. But I will give you some advice, and it is that you should see three therapists once. And whichever one you like the most of those is the one that you should see. Interview some people. So, yeah. Yeah. So she was like, okay, so I guess we'll do that. So we stopped seeing Raquel. And we find this other therapist and we start seeing her. And 
we actually really like her. We don't see a third person. She is still my therapist today. (laughs) Hey, that's a win. Yeah, and she's excellent. So when I was still living with my mom, she would kind of see us both together for the first like 10 or 15 minutes of the session and then my mom would leave and then I would get to have my therapy session. And she's really great. She eventually tells me that I should see a psychiatrist, which Raquel had recommended, but my mom had said no. And she like eventually convinces my mom that I should see a psychiatrist. And then in April of 2017, I see a psychiatrist. She's like, you have depression and also social anxiety. Take Lexapro. (laughs) Try something. Yeah. So she kind of hands me Lexapro, you know, metaphorically. And I start taking it. The first week that I'm on it, it makes me feel sick as a dog. But after that, it's pretty good. I stayed on Lexapro for like a couple years, maybe a year and a half. Um, And it made me not suicidal, which at that point was enough. It's a step. It took me from having constant intrusive thoughts about killing myself to that not being the case. Mm -hmm. Like the ideation Um, piece. Yeah. I know calling it a piece as if it like exists in isolation is weird, but sometimes it can feel that way, right? Like, yeah, that one thing's kind of gone, mostly gone. Um, and you know, it was still like, I was still carrying around the sort of heaviness that accompanies being suicidal of like, I feel I feel like I mean I don't I haven't my line of experience with this stuff is pretty different but just like a low level rawness like to me at my hardest whatever I want to call it it's just like everything is raw everything is because you kind of hummed and it's like yeah like everything is on high alert and awful and overwhelming and I guess it's probably in my case I would think it's probably because it's related to like amygdala hijacking it's like oh my entire nervous system is shot and that's affecting my experience of life but i don't know these are things that i would not have known 10 years ago to describe it that way so yeah no but you you got it that's that's exactly it so then i started college i'm still drinking at this point um still smoking weed my first changed it all with the lexapro so not obviously they're managing different things but like did you did starting a medication change the way that you were self-medicating? Which I no. realize you might not know. No. Okay. Because at that point, theoretically, I was still self-medicating my senior year of high school. But it didn't feel like I was self-medicating. I was just drinking because that's what I did. Mm-hmm. By the time I started an antidepressant, it didn't occur to me, oh, maybe I should try to drink less or... It wasn't like a careful titration of the... Yeah, what was in the mix. Gotcha. Because it was just such a habit. It was just what I did. So I get to college. My first semester of college, I sort of dabble in a couple of other drugs. 
which were also great for my pain, which I really try not to think about anymore. But like, God, like sometimes my face hurts in a particular way. And I'm like, my alcoholism is kind of like, "Mm, I know that if I did some cocaine right now, like that would stop immediately. (laughs) I really would... I mean, I know why this doesn't exist, or I can guess why, but I would really love to see more, like, public discussion about what is a huge problem, which is that, like, yeah, we don't, e- we don't even have tools for thinking about this kind of stuff, I feel like. Like, in the context where we're all getting the message all the time that we should fight through pain and, like, mindfulness our way through pain, and that pain relief itself, no matter the context, is, like for weak people maybe i think all of these messages are out there and then when that intersects with yeah like abusable substances and like the kinds of trade-offs that people have to make for whatever the space is between addiction and dependence like yeah we don't there's barely any resources out there for people who are living in chronic pain who need to manage this it is and also to go back a little bit my mom would get headaches a lot when i was a kid for some periods she would just be like constantly on tylenol Mm -hmm. because of her headaches and then eventually she would be like no like i'm i'm taking too much tylenol i need to stop Mm -hmm. and then would just then for months be like oh i have a headache i'd be like so take tylenol and she would be like no no i can't right and then during those periods also if i said that i had a headache she wouldn't give me the tylenol because she would be like no i'm concerned about our tylenol intake and i'm worried yeah that We're it's gonna be bad tylenol yeah um yeah so that yeah, yeah. so that gets in there <laughs> with like yeah. what our brands learn about pain management and what I was going to say what are acceptable trade-offs, which isn't really what I'm trying to say, but like, it's really hard to set up in your head in addition to everything else about it. Yeah. So college. Yeah. So I'm in college dabbling with different drugs. And then my spring semester rolls around. It's like around spring break. Um, I'm at the pharmacy one day picking up my, my antidepressant. And I see a tube of Icy Hot. And I'm like, oh, I remember you. You're for pain. (laughs) Yeah. So my introduction to Icy Hot was that my dad, who lives in Venezuela still, when he would come to visit, the first thing that we would do, like before we got home from the airport, it would be like, let's stop at CVS. I need to get, like, Icy Hot, Bengay, like, all this stuff. The good stuff. And he would just stock up. Yeah. And then the whole house would smell of, like, menthol from yeah. just how much pain creams he was using. Yeah. Because, oh. yeah, he has really bad back pain. I don't know much about his health, but I know that, like, at some point it was so bad that my mom had to do like a trigger point injection for him Hmm. like at home and she was like 
she she tells the story all the time she's like bro like injecting somebody is the grossest feeling ever sorry i just listened to your your second health episode and i know you have like weirdly vegas nerve stuff okay weirdly it doesn't make sense but yeah i believe it would be disgusting i could not do it um so yeah my dad has really bad back issues like my understanding of my father is of someone who is always at like 45 degrees or less from the ground like i've i've seen him standing up like he he is sure ambulant but um but you just like you've retained it this was yeah this is a feature it's a common thing he is a man who reclines yeah (laughs) and he is also a man who falls asleep all the time Mm, interesting. interesting. Almost like he maybe has some fatigue. Something might be going on there. Who could know? Maybe. <laughs> maybe he's tired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, not everyone falls asleep all the time, I've heard. Yeah. So, so they tell me. <laughs> so they tell me not everyone falls asleep in the car, but that is something that my father and I do have in common. Yeah. So... I see this tube of Icy Hot and I'm like, mm, I deserve it. I'm having a hard time. My freshman year of college was a disaster for reasons that I'm not really going to get into. But I was like, I'm having a really bad time. I, I deserve to buy this tube of Icy Hot and carry it around in my backpack. So I did. And I threw it in my backpack and I was a college student so I had my backpack with me like all the time every so often I would like remember that I had icy hot in my backpack and be like oh my god (laughs) my days of that get so much better (laughs) yeah I remember one night I was very drunk at a party and I was standing in like a doorway with the door frame like between my shoulder blades I was kind of leaning on it to like rub out the the knots in my muscles yeah my friend turned to me and was like my dad does that (laughs) and also so from a very young age I would like stretch a lot like I'm constantly stretching constantly like contorting that sort of thing and my mom would always think it was really weird And she mentioned that me and my dad were both probably part ostrich because our fingers bend back. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Which is funny. (laughs) Um, That must be it. Yeah. So then my friend turns to me, she's like, my dad does that. I'm like, dads, you say? And I (laughs) suddenly remember that I have Icy Hot in my backpack and I just like cover my whole body in Icy Hot. Yes. And it felt amazing. And so anyway, like probably a few weeks after that incident, I got sober. Okay. So this is late your first year of college? My first year of college. Yeah. Yeah. Like a month, two months before my 19th birthday. Okay. Um, and I got involved in like 12-step work and going to meetings and stuff like that. One of my best friends from college was like already doing that. So we went together and it was very good. And I've been sober ever since. And I'm very, very lucky that that is the case because I 
do not work a perfect program all the time by any means. Like nobody does, but I think it's especially hard when you're chronically ill to like constantly be engaging with, I don't know. I feel like 12 step work and the 12 step community is very, you need to be able to use your brain at least a little bit. And there are days when I just can't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been times. So now in COVID, meetings are all like online. Mm -hmm. And there have been times in the past few months where I like log on to a meeting and then roll over and fall asleep like immediately. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, does that count? Did I go to a meeting today? Kind of. Yeah, I, I took the action, which is, yeah. is something. Yeah. And I fell asleep, which is a different something. Yeah. yeah. So it's hard. But yeah. So I got sober, which meant that I no longer had any pain management. Right. All of your kind of incidental pain management yeah. tools well except for your icy hot but yeah the major ones yeah and i'm like oh oh hello body Bad it's news. been a while mm -hmm. since we've met mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's been like four years oh dear god there's a lot going on this is bad yeah this is very very bad mm -hmm. so i go home for the summer and i'm like in bed <laughs> the whole time yeah except for when i'm like going to a meeting or okay. something like that a question that i have about yes that experience which i'm totally projecting onto right now is did you do you feel like you had very much awareness about what was physical like about where the sort of permeable boundaries were between physical health and mental health like I'm asking because it has been my experience that before I kind of knew what was going on, I had a number of times when I maybe spent a month lying down. And I think I, I didn't know what to call it, but I definitely always was filing it under mental health. And now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, I think a lot of the mental health problems were just internalized ableism. And actually it was mostly a physical problem that I was hating myself for. And I wonder like that, how was that for you, I guess? <laughs> So growing up, like as a teen, the summers were very much time for me to lie down mm -hmm. because like I said, I was just dancing as fast as I could Chaos. during the school year. So I had always sort of chalked that up to depression. Mm -hmm. It was not something that my mother liked sure. either. She was like, what, what are you doing? Do something, mm -hmm. anything, like literally anything, just do something. Yeah. And I was like, I can't. Yeah. The summer between high school and college, I did have a job. But I was working at my high school library, like cataloging these vinyl records. My band teacher had a vinyl record collection. I was a band kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I ate lunch in my band teacher's office. There yeah. was like a bunch of us who did that. Um, yeah. And he was like, hey, so we're moving this record collection into the library. I bet you could get them to give you a job. And I was like, yeah, probably. Yeah. So I talked to the librarian who had been my computer skills teacher when I was like eight. Great. And I was like, hey, Miss Long, 
I've known you for 10 years. Can I have a job, please? And she was like, yeah. Sure thing. So it was like a sitting down job. And it was not even like a sitting down and using your brain job because that was when I discovered podcasts. Yeah. I would sit there, like put stickers on and just listen to podcasts. Yeah. Um, So it was super laid back, super easy. But even then, like a couple months before the end of the summer, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I'm dying. Like sitting. Yeah. No, I didn't realize <laughs> that it was a physical health thing. And you'd been lying. It sounds like you, not you'd been lying down a lot, but like you yeah. kind of had a relationship yeah. to restful summers that didn't make it seem like it was by itself a crisis. Yeah. Like I thought of myself as someone who would lie down for three months out of the year. Yeah. And I was like, this is normal for someone who has depression. Probably. Yep. Right? That's what we're told about depression and how it manifests and what it does. I don't have any strong This is definitely very normal for someone who has depression, even when they're taking medication and going to therapy every week. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And also going to meetings every day. Right. Where you get to, like, talk about your feelings. Yeah. Like, genuine. Yeah. Genuine. Okay, wait. I lost the word that I'm trying to say. Genuinely, I think, emotionally engaged. Like, one of yes. the hallmarks of depression is not necessarily complete emotional flatness, but, like, if you have a mostly pretty rich emotional experience and you're still spending a lot of time in bed, I don't know. That should rule out depression. But... Yeah, it turned out that it wasn't depression. It was just in a lot of pain. Right. And like, which isn't to say that depression wasn't yeah. in the mix, but that yeah. in fact... Like, not... I was depressed. Right. Sure. But it doesn't... But I was just also in a lot of pain, and that was why I was lying down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went back to college. My life kind of fell apart. <laughs> yeah. For a variety of reasons, some of them health related (laughs) so november of that year i had a psychiatric hospitalization because i was like suicidal in a very serious way for the first time in many many years Mm -hmm. and were you still taking the lexapro then which i was had been helping but everything else changed obviously yeah yeah well, my I had like a major life upheaval, which triggered that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a psychiatric hospitalization, and during that, my mother's psychiatric health also took a really steep decline, worse than mine. Mm-hmm. But she didn't go to the hospital. Hers was in a different direction, though. Mine was, I want to hurt myself. And hers was, I feel like I'm under attack. Basically, she she started having psychosis, which I also experience to a lesser degree, but, you know, so far. (laughs) And she didn't get any treatment for that. And she still hasn't. Mm-hmm. And she's still, you know, kind of there. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. But how that affected me 
is that I haven't been home since then because I haven't been invited. And my psychiatric hospitalization happened right before Thanksgiving break. Okay. So I was like, all right, I'm on this college campus essentially by myself. I don't like this. One of my housemates had invited me and my other housemate to come to their Thanksgiving if we wanted to go. And like one day into Thanksgiving break, we kind of looked at each other and we were like, we have to go because otherwise like we're going to die here. Being on a college campus alone during Thanksgiving break is so awful. I believe it. <laughs> um, especially when you have just had this major life upheaval that then led to another major life upheaval that then led to another. And is like... There's a lot to unpack about Thanksgiving, for sure. But, like, the vibe around Thanksgiving time is that a lot of people are really into their own families in a way that is not always affirming if your family is not like that. Yeah. So something important that happened in the hospital is that my last day there, they went through my file with me. And they were like, okay, here are the diagnoses that you came in with. And the diagnoses were depression, social phobia, and personality disorder not otherwise specified. And I was like, hang on a second. (laughs) Nobody ever mentioned to me that I have a personality disorder, but I have kind of previously thought that I might have borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. but but no one ever told me so I like so in high school there was a point where I was like pretty much comfortably self-diagnosing with borderline okay um but then like one of my friends said something about self-diagnosis that was invalidating yeah and I was like mm, okay no never mind never yeah, mind like, we're just Cut that one off. We're going to put that in a box and never think about it again. Yeah, sure, sure. They were like, oh, yeah, you came in with this diagnosis. And I was like, no one told me. Yeah. They're like, well, you should talk to your doctor about it. Sure. And they were like, here are the diagnoses that you're leaving with. So we've gotten rid of the social phobia, which I agree with. And we're putting, like, your substance abuse stuff on your record and also PTSD. And I was like, okay, cool. And they were like, we would diagnose you with borderline if you were a little bit older. Mm. Um, hmm. But we're, we're giving, we're keeping the personality disorder not otherwise specified just because you're 19 and things could change. And I was like, Okay. I mean, that's, that's like weird, but okay. Yeah. So at that point, I'm like, okay, so I have borderline. (laughs) So I was right all along. Yeah. Self-diagnosis discourse. (laughs) Yeah. And so I go to my psychiatrist appointment and I'm like, hello, Dr. Flagman. (laughs) I have questions for you. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like... (laughs) hey what's up and I'm like so hi 
did you diagnose me with a personality disorder and then not tell me? And he was like, oh, let me check my notes. And I'm like, did you, did you diagnose me with a personality disorder and then forget? Yeah, like what does that, I have a lot of questions about everything. Yeah. But including the nature of, of like, some psych diag... The way that some, some psych diagnoses are managed. I don't mean, like, the validity of some psych yeah. diagnoses. I just mean the, like, the way that everyone and everything engages with them and how mm-hmm. bizarre it can be sometimes, yeah. we'll say. So he checks his notes. <laughs> and as it turns out, he did, in fact diagnose me with a personality disorder and then a not tell me and b forget <laughs> like i just i have so many there's so many things where i'm like okay what an interesting situation i wonder what that doctor was thinking and i can kind of be like okay well maybe they were thinking that they which like this is very patriarchal but Let's accept that for a second because that's how medicine is. Like, maybe they're thinking that they don't want to, like, burden this person because that's what they always say. And, like, maybe there is some case to be made for people who are minors about that in terms of, like, focusing on coping mechanisms. Like, there are a lot of maybes where I can, like, sort of get a little bit closer to understanding. But at the end of the day, it's like... Okay, but are you trying to give me enough information to make better choices to care for myself? Or do you just want to, like, observe me privately in your notes because you get paid to do that? Like, what are we doing here? Um, And it actually is a pretty common practice with borderline specifically to diagnose someone and then not tell them. I feel like I've also heard... A parallel thing, which is to tell someone but not write it down, is another yeah. one that's like, mm-hmm. which is kind of, I guess, exactly what happened to yeah. you. I've heard other people have a, a similar story of like, they didn't want, they told me that it will cause a lot of bias in my file, mm-hmm. but I might want to know. And you're like, yeah. okay, cool, cool, so, good system. Yeah. So then he was like, yeah, so now that you know, I, have you read the book, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me? And I was like, no, but I've obviously heard of it because I thought I had borderline for all of high school, but then I didn't think I was valid. Yeah, You're like I know about it, but I just didn't I, get into any of the resources because I wasn't sure if they were for me or not. I literally have the PDF saved on my computer but since nobody told me that I was valid, I thought that I shouldn't read it because maybe I wasn't valid. And like, that's an extremely relatable thing and also so ridiculous to be like, I didn't use the resource that I had because I thought I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. Like, okay, so when I self-diagnosed with Borderline, it's actually a really funny story. It was because somebody had shared a meme about Borderline And I was like, oh, this is, yeah, fuck, yeah. (laughs) So much so that I went to the page and then followed the page. And then I started, like, joining a bunch of, like, support groups for people with Borderline. Mm -hmm. And then when my friend said that thing about self-diagnosis that made me feel like I wasn't valid, 
I was like, I have to leave all of these groups. I've been taking up space that isn't for me. I have to unfollow all of these pages. I'm so sorry that I ruined everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a very borderline response to have. I was going to say, which sounds like, like one, very relatable, and two, a lot like black and white thinking. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, I can't believe that I'm bad. Yeah. (laughs) 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 It's on me. Anyway, my life was very hectic at that point, so I didn't end up reading I Hate You, Don't Leave Me until a few months ago. I did read it. And yeah, yeah. So, right. Very soon after that, I abruptly had to leave school for a reason that was not health related. And I couldn't go home. So I was going to school like in upstate New York. One of my friends who you're actually mutuals with on Twitter, Margo. Mm-hmm. Margo is from the area and he knew some people who like had an apartment where they were like willing to take me in and I moved there and I proceeded to not do anything at all for a month and then I got a job in food service. Like I just like flash back to working in food service and how extremely painful it is. Yeah. I got a job at a Barnes and Noble cafe. Mm-hmm. Which was a lot. It was very bad. And start working there. Also, hanging over me is the fact that because I'm no longer a student, in August, my health insurance is going to disappear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, I'm like, okay, no, it's fine. I'll just eventually get on my mom's health insurance. Or, you know, I'll get on, like, the New York State health insurance, which is subsidized and would be free. Like, I'll figure something out. I'm working at Barnes & Noble Cafe, and it sucks so much. And it hurts so much. (laughs) Um, I can't believe in retrospect, like, any job that's basically on your feet all the time. I'm like... I know that there are, again, there's a lot to say about labor practices in general, but specifically yeah. when you're in chronic pain and you're like upright all day and you don't really have the lens to fully interpret or handle it, it's like yeah, terrible. <laughs> also, I can't drive. And most of the time, I was very lucky that my, like one of my four roommates was able to drive me to and or from work. Mm-hmm. Or one of my coworkers could, like, drop me off at home after. But not always. <laughs> like, yeah. sometimes I did have to walk. Right. And it was, like, a two and a half mile walk. Yeah. Which is not that bad, but is also pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially if you have chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Especially if you've just worked, like, a seven hour shift on your feet the whole time. It was bad when that happened, which was not always. I'm foreshadowing something. (laughs) So August comes around. I was not able to get my life together enough to have health insurance. So now I don't 
have health insurance. So now I'm like, okay, in October, I'm going to have to move anyway. So I should try to get a job at like a real Starbucks because now I have experience, like I know all the recipes. I had applied for Starbucks before because of their excellent health insurance. And I was like, I'll apply for jobs to start in October and it'll be great, it'll be good. So I do, and I eventually get a job at a Starbucks. The people who I had been planning to get an apartment with find an apartment with somebody else. Which was not great. (laughs) So then I'm looking for apartments with someone who I barely know. And then he kind of flakes and I'm like, okay, so I guess I'm going to find an apartment by myself. We'll see how this goes. Yeah. But I found one. It's too expensive. It's beautiful. (laughs) And I love living here, and I've lived here for a little over a year, and I have not missed my rent or been laid on my rent once by sheer miracles and force of will. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. Yeah. Just completely by accident, it has worked out. Mm -hmm. But then, all of a sudden, I'm living alone which means that I don't have roommates, which means that no one can really drive me to work. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And by this point, I've sort of realized that I have chronic pain and I'm starting to identify as someone with chronic pain Mm -hmm. in a vague way. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. Mm, Sorry. This is like basically a year. Is it a year? Like six months. Six months after. Because I'm just, because you... Yeah, so I left college in February of 2018. Okay, and then at that point, you'd been sober for... For almost a year. For almost a year at that point of 2018. And so then... I got a year of sobriety in April of 2018. Okay. So I was already living, like, not in college. Mm -hmm. And then in October of 2018, I moved to this apartment. Okay. And I started working at Starbucks. Okay. So uh, just on that side of things from the like, aha, there is pain here. It's like 18 months in, about a year and a half. Yeah. Okay. Um, I move here and I'm like, it's six miles from here to work. That's far. It's far, but it's not that far in my brain. I used to walk that regularly. Yeah. And I'm like, I, and there is a bus, right? But it's not Manhattan, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. it's not a dense metropolitan area Mm -hmm. where there is good public transport. Yeah. Public transport exists, but it does take me longer to get from my apartment to work when I take the bus Mm -hmm. than it does when I walk. Yeah. So at first I'm like, I will take the bus whenever possible. And then when it's not possible, I will walk. But eventually I'm living in spoon debt 
right? And even though in theory, I know that taking the bus will take less energy than walking, I need to lie down for 20 more minutes, which means I can't take the bus, which means I have to walk, mm-hmm. right? So then I start walking to work. Sometimes walking home from work, most of the time I would cave and I would buy an Uber. Yeah. So I'm walking to work. <laughs> and it sucks. It's so bad. And my manager keeps scheduling me so that I close every Sunday night. And Sunday night is when you clean the whole store after closing like a deep clean and you're there until 11 30 p.m and i'm like this is so bad this is this is so bad yeah and eventually i just start taking ubers to and from work like most of the time Mm -hmm. but like i live kind of not exactly in the city that i live close to so like sometimes I'm in my apartment and there are just no Ubers. So I have to walk like into town. Yeah. And then eventually like sometimes there's an Uber, but not always. Yeah. So it's just a whole thing. And then sometimes I have to work like these crazy early, these ridiculous early morning shifts where I have to leave my apartment at like three in the morning to get there on time. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's bad. It's just bad. <laughs> but I'm like, I have to stay here because this is the only place where I can work part time and still get health insurance, which is so bad. <laughs> yep. Um, that's a really upsetting sentence. So eventually I like, I decrease my availability. And I'm like, I just can't close on Sundays. I just can't. Mm -hmm. like that's just the case I can't close on Sundays I also just can't work before Mm -hmm. like noon and my boss isn't thrilled about it but she's like okay whatever and I'm taking Ubers to and from work because I'm just so exhausted and I'm losing money yeah pretty much the cost of transportation is basically eating up the paycheck yeah yeah um and I'm making like $200 a week and it's pathetic. And then it's March of 2019. Or no, sorry. This was all in 2019. Okay. And then it's March of 2020. Okay. And all of a sudden I'm eligible for health insurance. So I have health insurance and I make appointments with doctors. I make an appointment with my, with a new primary care doctor and I see her in person once. (laughs) Right. March, 2020. March of 2020. And then it's a pandemic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then I'm like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. another 
I had one other in-person appointment that was to get a birth control implant in my arm. Mm-hmm. Because by that point, so in, okay. So I have Polaroids with dates behind yeah. me. It's your calendar. Um, yeah. My calendar of major life events. So February of 2019 okay. was when I was no longer going to school. Okay. I got sober in 2018. I got lost. You're talking about the implant. Yes. Okay. So the year that I stopped going to school, or that academic year, mm-hmm. I also started taking hormones. I started taking testosterone. Mm-hmm. And my freshman year of college, I had started taking birth control. Okay. So I like pretty much stopped having periods, which was such a relief. Because my periods were so painful. Yeah. And also, like, I'm trans, so periods are awful when you're trans, but, you know. Yeah. Were you you on a a pill then? Yeah. I was on the pill, but I was on, like, a continuous dose. Yeah. Like, no. So I just didn't take the placebo week. Yeah. Oh, also, when I started birth control and when I started college, I, like, gained a little bit of weight. So when I first went home from college... My mom asked me if I was pregnant. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Which was really fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's just a little side note. In the mix but, of all of it. Yeah. So you were on the pill. And, and then you yeah. were talking about, you said you so when tried I, tea and then later. When I first started taking the pill, I like, that was the first time that I had seen a doctor like as an adult. Mm-hmm. And it was probably the best doctor's appointment I had ever had because I had previously been seeing my pediatrician who was like fine but not great yeah and at some point yeah and at some point I went in because I thought I had a UTI and she asked me a bunch of questions and then she was like you're not having sex are you and I was like no but like I was. Yeah, like how am I supposed but, to? Answer but if that you question? asked me that question, like, also my mom is here. Like, no. Yeah, there's leave a lot me of that alone. That it's not gonna like lead to a comfortable yeah. disclosure. <laughs> so I see this doctor or this nurse practitioner at my college's wellness center, and she's great, and she's like explaining things to me, and she's like. We don't have to do a pelvic exam to start birth control if you don't want to. But if you do want to, we can just do one. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. But thank you for asking. Yeah. And then she like does a breast exam and she's like talking to me through the whole thing. And it's just like very comfortable. And she's very open with me about things. And it's just, it was great. You're like, this is informed consent. We could, yes. we could just always do this. Yeah. And I told her that. Like, later, I went back to the health center for, like, whatever, some other thing. And I was like, hey, you're the first health professional that I've seen that I, like, felt respected by. So mm-hmm. thank you. Mm-hmm. She was like, dude, that sucks. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. But thank you. Yeah. 
You're like, I know that it's sad, but I'm used to it being sad. I'm just trying to tell you the good part. Yeah. And then when I went to the psychiatric hospital for the first time, because in New York, when you go to a doctor, like any doctor, they ask you if you're in pain. Okay. Which is not something that doctors do in Florida, or at least not something that my pediatrician did. Mm-hmm. They just ask you, like, are you in any pain right now? Hmm. And I was like, yes. There's some pain. But, but, but isn't that, isn't that <laughs> the way things are? <laughs> yeah. So I sort of have that light bulb moment. And that's sort of the pieces of how I eventually came to identify as someone with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. So then I got my birth control implant. And then I can't see any doctors in person. But I, so I see my new primary care doctor. And I'm like, I, when I was working at Starbucks, one of my coworkers had fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. And like, we would talk about our life experience. And she was like, you have fibromyalgia. And I was like, hmm. Interesting. Maybe. <laughs> like, Maybe. What does that mean to you, personal yeah. fibromyalgia? Yeah. So we start talking and eventually I'm like, oh, you're right. I have fibromyalgia. And then also that February, I went to visit Margot in college because he was still in school. And at some point we were sitting on these steps, sitting like pretty normally. And I stood up, and this was before Margot got sick. Or, like, before Margot got, like, really sick. As much as that is ever, like, <laughs> yeah. a binary um, thing. And we were sitting on these steps, and then we stood up, and I was like, we, we had been there for, like, 20 minutes, and we stood up, and I was like, hang on a second, my, my legs are numb. I have to, like, knock the blood back into them. And I was like, dude, like, that's not... That's not how bodies work. That's not what legs are meant to do. Legs should already be circulating. Yeah, Blood's there should thing. be blood in there. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> this is news. Yeah. Also, at some point, like during one of his breaks, he had come over and another one of our friends was here. We had been doing this puzzle like a jigsaw puzzle on the floor and I was in so much pain like I kept having to take breaks and like lie down in my bed because I live in a studio apartment so it was like you know they were two feet away from me and I was like lying down watching them do this puzzle Mm -hmm. and like like that night or at some point basically during one of these interactions that I had with Margo he was like bro like you're disabled like something's wrong yeah like you're chronically ill yeah like something's up like your body is not doing what it's supposed to do and then I was like well you know Michaela did tell me that I might have fibromyalgia and I think I have fibromyalgia (laughs) there's a pattern here to the feedback that I'm getting about whether or not my body experience is typical yeah and then also at some point 
I went to work one day and I had woken up in the middle of the night with like pins and needles in my legs. And I went to work and whatever and I'm like working my shift and I still have pins and needles and I complain to my coworker. I'm like, I've had pins and needles in my legs for the past like four hours. And she's like, go to the doctor. And I'm like, I'm going next month. I need yeah. health insurance. A thing I also think that if you have a lot of weird body stuff for most of your life, you also develop a pretty strong, like, what's a doctor going to do reflex. Yeah. It's like, okay, like, I don't think it's good news, but what's yeah. a doctor going to do? Tell me it's weird. I already know it's weird. Yeah. It's like, I recognize that's not the most helpful approach, but I certainly but it is what it is. have a strong, strong dose of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. My legs just feel bad. It's neuropathy. So I go, yeah. So I go to the doctor and I'm like, listen, I think I have fibromyalgia. And she's like, are you sure it's not Lyme disease? And I'm like, I don't go outside <laughs> at all, ever. Mm -hmm. Also, these symptoms have been around since I lived in Florida, where there is not Lyme disease. Also, I've never had a tick. Mm -hmm. And she's mm -hmm. like, okay. <laughs> like, she doesn't really believe me. Yeah. And she's like, all right, so we're going to have to rule out some things. So she does blood work, she like tests my thyroid, she tests like other things. Everyone always thinks there's something wrong with my thyroid. My thyroid has been exactly the same since I was 12. Yeah. Like since I went to that first endocrinologist. They also checked my thyroid when I started taking antidepressants. Like everyone thinks it's my thyroid and it's not. No. <laughs> No, yeah, I've been checked so many times. My yeah. thyroid and my iron. I'm like, I get it. Yeah. I understand why we might want to monitor things, but I think that we can stop assuming this is the main culprit. This is yeah. not the main culprit. So then I start, like, I see a new therapist for a minute, and she's like, it sounds like you have Lyme disease. And I'm like, I, I know that it's not Lyme disease. Like, I promise you it's not Lyme disease. <laughs> so then... We do a second round of blood work. My doctor is like, I still want to check you for Lyme disease. So like, we're going to test you for Lyme disease. She tests me for Lyme disease. I don't have fucking Lyme disease. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in New York is like, oh, you're tired. Do you, do you think, do you think you have Lyme disease? And I'm like, no, I don't go outside. And like, as an aside, Lyme is a quagmire. I'd like yeah. it's it's good for people to ask in upstate New yeah. York, but it also has this other thing where there's like such a large swath of people who think everything is Lyme disease, and you're like, okay, there is trouble. Like, there's a lot to this. There's trouble with the testing. It is actually pretty yeah. complicated, but some parts of it aren't complicated, which is when you're like, something else is causing my problem. Yeah, like I have so much solidarity with people who do have Lyme disease, yeah. like. God bless them, but like, oh my, I no. don't have Lyme disease. People, some some people latch onto it and just like yeah. really want everything to be yeah. Lyme disease, and it does it's, a lot of stuff. They all do. Yeah. But yeah. and it's the same thing as when a doctor is like, oh, maybe it's depression. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But anyway, so actually, the two things that I wanted from this doctor was a referral to a rheumatologist and a sleep study. Mm. What I came out with was blood work and a referral to a psychiatrist. 
Great. But I need a new psychiatrist anyway. So whatever. Happens. I start seeing the psychiatrist. She's great. And I come to her the first time and I'm like, listen, my doctor sent me to you. Oh, so I had sort of given up on Lexapro okay. like a few months before. I just kind of stopped taking it, which you're not supposed to do. But but it was kind of I okay, did. So. And it was fine. But, you know, don't take medical advice from me. Mm-hmm. I know you have the disclaimer anyway. <laughs> but So I'm like, listen, I, my doctor sent me to you because she thinks that my fatigue is depression related. I can tell you that it's not because the times when I have been very depressed, my fatigue is the same. And the times when I have been kind of not depressed, my fatigue is the same. My fatigue is a constant in my life. I am always tired. Yeah. And she was like, okay, I believe you. And then I was like, however, I do think I might have fibromyalgia. (laughs) The first thing that they try for fibromyalgia is in fact Cymbalta, which is an antidepressant. And you're a psychiatrist and I have depression. So do you think we could figure something out yeah. Just a little <laughs> and she was like prescription yeah and she was like yes i was actually going to say the same thing and i was like ah cool cool so we'll trick the insurance company great and cymbalta actually did help with my depression a little so like you know nice. um and i can't really tell if it's helping with my pain mm-hmm. or not Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell. Yeah. Because also, pretty much immediately after starting Cymbalta, I took a hiatus from work for a month because of COVID. Okay. And then I went back to work, and then work was awful. And then everyone who worked for Starbucks kind of got offered a separation package. Hmm. And I was like, I am going to take this because I cannot work this job anymore. And then I was on unemployment for a while, and now I work for you. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes. Right. So I'm on Cymbalta. I don't know if it's working or not. I also periodically will Google, like, herbal remedies for fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. And the first one that came up was, like, Korean ginseng. So I started taking these Korean ginseng pills. I took them for, like, a few months until the bottle ran out. And then I was like, that didn't work. So now I'm taking turmeric pills. Great. I don't think they're working, but, you know, it feels like I'm trying something. I Which understand. feels better than not trying anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got my second round of blood work with my doctor, comes back normal, all of my blood tests have come back normal. And she's like, okay, so I'll refer you to a rheumatologist. And she did. And I made the appointment and it's later this month. Oh, that's <laughs> exciting. Is it telehealth so, or is it in person? Uh, it's in person. Ooh. Yeah. And so do you know what you're going to ask them about yet? Do you, have you... Have you started your doctor game plan? As much as I hate that that's even a question that I would ask somebody. I have a notes document on my phone 
where I write down every time I think of another symptom that I have. Mm -hmm. And I can read it to you if you want. It's a little bit long. How about, what is the general structure of it? Or is it just a random list? Because it's just whenever I think of something. But so if we can return to my hypermobility for one second, because that's kind of a thread that got lost. Yeah. Well, especially because just where when we stopped talking about that and then you were like, I started to realize chronic pain, started to think of it as fibro. And if I hadn't been asking a bunch of leading questions about your mobility, (laughs) then that's all we would know. So there's the fibro aspect, right? And then I like dive headfirst into chronic illness Twitter and suddenly I'm reading a lot about EDS and I'm like, hmm, sounds like me. And I had heard of EDS before a couple of times, but just, it was never presented as something that I might have. Mm -hmm. Like, it was like, I had seen a picture on a Facebook group of a lady with her legs like crossed and then crossed again like the ankle was tucked behind the other leg yeah and someone in the comments was talking about how they can do that and they have eds and i was like oh i can do that but like that's a rare disease i probably don't have it yeah and then suddenly it was being presented as something i might have and i was like okay interesting (laughs) (laughs) So in my last semester of college, I audited a class that was anatomy for dancers, which was a very interesting class for me to take Mm -hmm. because it was great because, so I love the show Bones, or I used to love the show Bones. Now I kind of have a complicated relationship with it where it makes me anxious because I have to look at cops. It's one of those mini propaganda shows that really soured when one starts to pay attention to what the world it belongs to. I understand. Yeah. But what I liked about it was always the science parts Mm -hmm. because Emily Deschanel is just like throwing out a bunch of words. And then, like, I would watch Bones and then pause it and look up, like, the words that she was using and kind of, like, look at, like, what what part of the body that is and kind of learn things because I like to collect facts because I'm a formerly gifted kid. Yeah. So I took this class because it was just the only anatomy class that my college offered, which is weird. It's random, but sure. Yeah. Like it was a required part of the dance curriculum. Oh, interesting. Um, I guess it makes sense from like a kinesiology perspective. Yeah. So what we would do was we would like draw diagrams of different parts of the body and then like do exercises where we could sort of feel like how that part of the body moved in Mm -hmm. our specific body okay yeah and in that class i was friends with one person already so we were always like partners for like different things where we would like feel on each other's bodies like where things are and she and i were both kind of like holy shit like my skeleton is loose yeah i'm just a loose bag of bones yeah (laughs) one fact that has no other meaning right yeah like i remember talking about the si joint and 
and our teacher being like, yeah, like you might not have any mobility there. And then I, I felt mine and I was like, Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. He's loose. Yeah. Really. Like if I pay attention to this joint, I in fact have quite a bit of mobility there. Yeah. Am I and doing so well? I show, <laughs> yeah. And so I show my friend Michaela and she's like, Holy shit. And then we show our teacher, Sasha, and she's like, bro. And then she, like, shows the whole class, like, my loose joint. Yeah. (laughs) Because she's like, this is a great example of where the joint is. Yeah. We can all find this one. (laughs) We can all learn from this. (laughs) And yeah, that was just an experience that I had filed away. Yes, under interesting but otherwise meaningless, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, so this happened twice, like with two different diseases. It happened first with EDS and then with POTS, mm-hmm. where Margot was like, hey, I think I have this disease. Can you help me figure it out? And I was like, yeah, okay. So we would look at the diagnostic criteria together. We were like checking things off for him. And I was like kind of secretly like checking things off for myself. Yeah. You have, like, a separate and, tally that you're like, oh, yeah. don't think about that. <laughs> yeah. And then afterwards, he was like, I don't know why you think you don't have EDS. And I was like, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I might be rethinking right. that. Yeah. And then with POTS, he was like, he knew that he had POTS. Mm-hmm. And he posted somewhere, hey, if you don't have POTS, I want you to take your heart rate, like, lying down and then standing up. Because I just want to know, like, what a normate body does. Yeah. And so I took mine and I sent it to him. And he was like, bro, you have pots. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the typical one. This is, <laughs> this is the one that went up a lot. It's not yeah. supposed to go up like that. It's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have pots. I'm like... POTS to me, I talk about this all the time. I'm sure you've heard me talk about this. POTS to me is the one that's like, it's so clear once you know what it is, Mm -hmm. but like nobody's looking for it or talking about it. And now that I know to check my heart rate when I feel like that, I'm like, oh, this is my heart rate. That's this whole thing. But before it was just like, I feel mysteriously terrible all the time. What a weird mystery that I can't describe to anybody. And yeah. nobody huh. seems it's to know kind what I'm of weird about. that I get hot flashes in the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. I bet it's just a side effect of my meds. Yeah. Like there's always like a little bit or like I've always been a little bit which is it's the same freaking thing, but it's like, oh well, I've always been a little bit hotter or colder than everybody else in the room. Yeah. Which like big side eye because that's just temperature dysregulation. But yeah. nobody's calling it that. Like mm-hmm. yes so that's kind of how that happened and at this point i feel pretty comfortably Mm self-diagnosed with all of these things with fibro hypermobile eds and pots Mm i am primarily seeing a doctor because i want to know if there's anything that they're gonna recommend i'm pretty much managing things on my own like for pots, I'm drinking a lot of salt water and like Gatorade. This is my giant water bottle. It's the same size <laughs> as my head that somebody 
I forget who, somebody online, somebody on Twitter recommended it at one point, was like, I drink out of a giant bottle like this. It's like, great. I'm going to buy one and I'm going to drink three of those a day. Exactly. And for the EDS, like, I made finger braces for mm-hmm. myself because I was like, this is right something that could easily just be done. Mm-hmm. And those have been really helpful for when I'm like typing or when I, when I'm having a day where I know I'm going to do a lot of like grabbing of objects. Mm-hmm. Something scary that happened at work that is still kind of unexplained by these three diagnoses is that I was holding someone's like iced matcha latte and all of a sudden my hand just stopped holding it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the deal is with that. Mm-hmm. My primary care doctor also has me on Flexeril, which is a muscle relaxant. Hmm. Is it? What does it like? I understand what a muscle relaxant is, but how do you, how does that impact you? Like, what do you find that it does? Well, so when you go to a doctor and you're like, "I have pain," they're like, "What kind of pain?" And yeah. the thing is, I have muscle pain and joint pain and nerve pain yeah which is all of them Mm -hmm. i think i don't know yeah i have maybe experienced bone pain but i don't i'm not really clear on what bone pain is yeah because i've never broken a bone so i don't really know like yeah how that would feel yeah i don't have any insight i understand what you're saying so she was like well if you have muscle pain Let's, let's try a muscle relaxant. Yeah, let's relax those muscles. See what happens. Yeah. Um, and we did. And, like, it has helped with my muscle pain. Mm-hmm. But with EDS, like, the reason why your muscles are so tense is to sort of keep your joints yeah. in place because that's the only thing that's doing that job. Right. So I do have to be a lot more careful. I haven't dislocated anything yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely like still do have subluxations. And once you started, once you learned what that was, like what a subluxation was, which let's explain again, because I feel like it's been explained a lot probably over the last podcast, but it's when you're, when your joint is not properly in alignment, but also is not necessarily fully dislocated. So everything in between being in the right place and being obviously in the wrong place basically is subluxation. I just got hit in the eye, hit in the face with a ladybug. Oh, yeah. They um, love, I don't know. If, are you in upstate New York? Is yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Because we're having like a really warm couple of days, which is mm-hmm. what the ladybugs like after yeah. we had a snowstorm last week. So it's hot yeah. out today. Fun. But yeah, so my, my SI joint subluxes all the time. Yeah. And so I recently, like last week, I think, bought an SI brace. Mm. And that has been really helpful. I'm wearing it now. It's really like the only reason why I'm able to sit up mm-hmm. right now. But yeah, so that's sort of how I'm managing EDS. I will like occasionally like wrap a joint in an ACE bandage, even though I know it doesn't really stabilize anything. It does make me more careful, mm-hmm. you know, because I know what's going on with my knee. Yeah. So I know to be careful of it. Yeah. I think, like, in that way, attention really helps. Like, yeah. given that so much of it is 
apparently just learning what safe range of motion is and then staying inside of it voluntarily like Mm -hmm. anything that can help you pay attention to your joints i would think would be obviously like there are ways to hurt yourself but yeah there's plenty Um, in between and i still have pain like every day (laughs) i don't know if the cymbalta is helping but it's certainly not hurting me Mm -hmm. it's not making it worse i rest a lot a couple of days ago i had to go into the city with one of my friends because he had a dentist appointment he had a dentist appointment and it's a long drive and so i just went with him mm-hmm. and i had to go to the bathroom while he was at the dentist and i ended up like walking around manhattan for a half hour I walked like almost two miles, which is much more than I have been walking and felt horrible. The past two days, I've just been like sleeping all day. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was able to be there for my friends. So like, it's worth it. Like, you know, I have to make those trade-offs, but I'm no longer making those trade-offs between like, oh, am I going to have enough money to survive this week or... Am I gonna, like, not feel horrible? Like, now it's, oh, am I gonna be there to support my friend, or am I gonna, like, maybe feel bad, which is a much better decision to be making. Yeah. and there's, You know, it doesn't feel like I'm being held at gunpoint. Yeah, there's a big difference between occasionally, honestly, voluntarily deciding to take the hit and never being able to recover because you're stuck in the grind of like living at a spoon deficit like you said earlier which is it took me a really long time to recover like at all Mm -hmm. from starbucks like after i stopped working there Mm -hmm. um i haven't fully recovered i don't expect to like i don't expect to ever get my pre-starbucks baseline back Mm -hmm. but yeah it takes a long time yeah. when you're like using more spoons than you have to like then get back to like being able to do anything at all yeah yeah because you can you can feel it when you're like oh i'm working from a deficit it's like i'm like yeah. carving out of myself for everything that i do compared to yeah. it turns out that it is true that if you wait long enough and can figure out kind of all of the things that very occasionally a lot of people describe being able to like not live really enthusiastically energetically but like that's what successful pacing looks like is yeah actually figure that out but getting there is painful and it's hard hard and then like you have a good day or even like a good moment and you're like i have to do all the things that I haven't done. Yeah. And then you accidentally overshoot how many spoons you have, and then you're back back to where you were or worse. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah, it is. I have a related question since you are just looking into POTS and EDS, and this is, okay, potentially meaty question, and if the answer is no, then that's fine, but it's, has you, have you looked at mass cell stuff at all? Like... Just because it turns out that there's such a strong overlap, but I understand that one of the reasons it's complicated is that it usually involves diet, which is like, yeah, 
getting into it sucks. So just wondering, has that been a piece of the puzzle for you at all at this time? So I have thought about it very tentatively Mm -hmm. because I have a lot of the symptoms of mast cell. But when it comes to like actually accepting that one has mast cell, let's say, those are lifestyle changes that I think would be psychologically a lot harder for me. Mm -hmm. Like food is already really loaded for me. You know, I eventually like, I guess, quote unquote, recovered from bulimia, but you know, that's not something that ever really goes away. Eating disorder brain just kind of persists, you know, like you can turn a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't unpickle it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's there. Yeah. Briny. Um, like, and I know that a lot of people, even just with fibromyalgia benefit from, for example, cutting out gluten. Mm-hmm. I don't really feel comfortable like making dietary changes just because I don't always really have a choice of what I eat anyway. Yeah. You know, like I, the way that my brain works is that I don't get hungry exactly. I feel like I can eat ice cream, you know? Yeah. Or I feel like I can eat a grapefruit. Mm -hmm. It's not, my brain doesn't register my hunger signals in a normal way anymore. Yeah. There are foods that feel safe right now that maybe won't in an hour, so I have to eat it right now. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of am nervous about putting restrictions on that. Yeah, the like, don't look behind this door right now. Yeah, exactly. Like, maybe... It will turn out to be relevant, but now is not the time to look behind this door because it's going to be a whole thing. Exactly. Like, when I first got sober, a lot of people told me, like, oh, like, in your first year of sobriety, don't quit smoking. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, if you're trying to stop drinking, you're not going to try to stop smoking cigarettes at the same time. Like, that's too many things. It's too many things. Right now, I'm trying to, like, limit activity. Yeah. And I'm not going to also limit my food. No. (laughs) Especially not from just, like, there's so much energy that goes into... Yeah. Yeah, complicated eating. It's such a mess. So, you know, it's possible that at some point in my life, I will feel ready to maybe consider like, oh, maybe I have mast cell stuff going on. Mm -hmm. But as of right now, that's just not something that I can look at. And it sounds like it's also not the biggest fire because it's the kind of thing that like when it's the biggest fire, you'll you would know, you know, like because we know there's this like section of people who are just anaphylactic all the time, kind of. But lots of people who are living with mast cell stuff, it never manifests that way. Yeah, like my mast cell stuff is I get rashes Mm -hmm. that are weird and that I can't really explain. Yeah. But I've never not been able to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. And for that kind of stuff, I know I'm not the only one who talks about it this way, but I definitely think about it now with like harm reduction. Yeah. Which is like, 
yeah, like which fire do I want to be putting out right now? Can I live with this weird rash? Yes. Do I want to live with it forever? Not if I can help it. And like keeping those things in tension to figure out. Yeah. So something else that's weird before we wind down, which we should do soon, is I have, this is also my first interview since the pandemic started, which is weird because there's, okay, to like subvert time for a second. I still have one more that I have to release. This was now recorded literally a year ago. And it's so weird listening to them because this hasn't happened yet. But like, obviously it's an impacted healthcare. And in some ways I know a lot of us have been talking about how it hasn't impacted our day-to-day life. Like, so for the last year since, not the last year, since March, you were working, you weren't working. You kind of summed that up. But is there any, any other way that this giant global upheaval <laughs> that we can talk about briefly and casually has kind of played into what it is like now in the present? Yeah, absolutely. So before the pandemic, every single doctor's appointment that I made was something that I would have to get to Mm -hmm. physically. Like I had to take my body that is currently in my apartment and somehow get it to the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. Right now, my primary care doctor is just up the road. So, you know, if I had to walk there, it would not be the end of the world. It would be the end of my week, but Mm -hmm. it wouldn't kill me. But I sometimes would like avoid making a doctor's appointment, for example, because I knew that trying to figure out how I was going to get there, like if I was going to take the bus, if someone was going to drive me, who was going to drive me, when was I going to ask them? How was I going to ask them? All of these things were just caused me so much anxiety. Yeah. That it just wasn't worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Like telehealth has been excellent. And I had actually already been doing telehealth for therapy Mm -hmm. because the therapist who I see is in Florida. Right. So I've been doing telehealth for many years now and it already felt comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. So that. I'm very lucky in that way. I also like before meetings all went online, I was already going to a couple of online meetings per week Mm -hmm. because I'm disabled. Right. (laughs) And because I just can't and I don't drive. Mm -hmm. So I just can't like get to a physical meeting every day. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like everything is online, which everyone has been talking about a lot. Yeah. What a weird year to really understate that and like something that's weird about it for me is that 2020 has been like in my personal life and in my like health life Mm -hmm. the best year in recent memory Mm -hmm. because there are not like actively outside forces that are damaging me Mm yeah yeah So that's weird. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not the kind of person who thinks that like everything happens for a reason or that like, you know, you have to look on the bright side all the time. Absolutely not. But like whenever something bad happens, there are good things that are going to come from it. So like with the pandemic, like in my life, I, I would not have left my job at Starbucks Mm -hmm. 
if not for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would still be working there and it would still be awful and it would still be damaging my body yeah. in the ways that it was. Yeah. And even with like being sick, like I have gotten access to this really awesome community of people and like it in learning about like pacing like my body it has made my activism better because like the way that I feel like a lot of the United States functions is with the news cycle of like oh yes we are going to do a quick and very intense burst of this particular issue and then we're gonna forget about it for like two years (laughs) yeah and learning about pacing myself when I'm doing dishes makes me think more about like, oh, how am I pacing myself with my activism? How am I pacing myself with like social justice work? And that has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. Something that I definitely saw from a random person on Twitter that I have like not been able to scrub from my brain was someone who had a talk called White Urgency is Violence or like a webinar mm-hmm. or something. But I like that phrase specifically. I'm like, holy shit, that is so true and not a new not a new idea. But just like the yeah. phrasing has latched into my brain completely. And now whenever I see urgency, which of course is everywhere all the time, I'm like, oh, that's manufactured. That's manufactured. That's manufactured. Like, yeah, it's so hard to like ease into this to pacing at all as a concept. But as you start to do it, like you say, if like you realize other places where there's like manufactured bottlenecks where everything disappears and then reappears urgently and then vanishes again. And you're like, oh, we could simply choose not to live like that, obviously. Yeah. And when you when you look at something urgently, like there's less of an opportunity to look at it like from a nuanced perspective Mm -hmm. i i've been listening to this podcast recently called you're wrong about Mm -hmm. where they like they go back on like different like things that were in the news in the past yeah and are like oh hey let's take a couple steps back maybe yeah maybe we didn't do this right (laughs) Maybe Tanya Harding is not a terrible person. Yeah, I've, I actually haven't listened to it, but I feel like there's a McDonald's hot coffee one, I think. That's the one that stands out to me, maybe. They, they're talking about doing that one. They haven't done it yet. Okay, that's think. why. I've, I've seen the documentary about it. But yeah. it's come up, anyway, I know about it. And yeah. I forget which ones. People always suggest them. Yeah. Um, but it's, like, very useful in that, like, you know, it just makes me feel... Like, the people who make this podcast are not disabled, but it makes me feel more valid in, like, the fact that my activism is always inherently going to be disabled. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm always, I'm never gonna be able to do that, like, very intense, like, oh, I'm, I'm posting, like, 25 Instagram stories a day about racism. Like, I can't do that. Because I can't read that many things in one day right it's like the whole Um, cycle of engagement etc but what i can do is a couple months after everyone has forgotten be like hey remember this maybe we should circle back to it yeah perhaps do do you think that maybe we were wrong about some things here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
let's talk. Let's yeah. process. Yeah. Hey, yeah, that was time. that was a weird moment that we had culturally. All let's talk about it. For example. Yeah. 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 It also, I think it's interesting, like in disabled community to see how many people end up being radicalized by the experience of getting sick. I think for similar reasons of like, when your life has to slow down, you take in information differently. And I know like I've been disengaged is the wrong word, but a lot less engaged than I normally am in like the news cycle, because I haven't had the cognitive capacity to like read long articles in at least six months. So it's like, it's interesting because in some ways, so many people will have cognitive stuff that, changes our engagement or prevents us from engaging the way that we may be expected to or did previously but on the other hand like all of this slow living really changes the way that you engage with information to the point that yeah you can be like hey a month has passed and I've been thinking about this a lot because I have the space to do it and let's talk everybody like you've been working or whatever it is that you do with your day and I've been processing and I am here now yeah 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 is there anything that we have not covered in our two-hour conversation? Not that I can think of. Great. <laughs> Great. Well, then, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm so excited to be talking to you face-to-face and yeah. to have you with No End in Sight, which people who are listening will know more about outside of the context of this interview by the time that they're hearing this. So that's fine. I'm excited about all of it. Yeah, I'm excited, too. Yay. Thank you for listening to episode 71 of No End in Sight. You can find me on Twitter at FibroFuckBoy. And if you want to support me directly and are in a position to, I have a Patreon where I post my poetry and other artistic endeavors at patreon.com slash darkmagenta. You can find Brienne on Twitter and Instagram at BenSB. And you can find many more conversations about chronic illness on Twitter at RTs from the Void. And don't forget, you can sign up to support the show over at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Or if you want to support the show but don't have a few bucks to spare, we'd be just as grateful if you left a podcast review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>